We have a rule in our house, a rule that often gets broken, that's a rule nonetheless, uh, that you don't ask questions during a movie. Now, as we've attempted to show our kids, you know, movies that are appropriate for them, but also movies that we think are significant enough that they need to know, and we've watched numerous movies that Laura and I have already watched, and our kids know that. So they're tempted to ask questions when they come across some detail that they think, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand where this is going. Well, of course, some movies intend you to be a little bit confused at the beginning. And so our constant reply when a question is asked is, just watch the movie. <laughs> Hopefully we can be more patient at times with that. But I mean, you're familiar with movies that tell stories with some intentional ambiguity at the beginning. You know, they're telling you details, but they're not telling you why it's important yet. So you're supposed to pay attention, but you don't know where it's going. Uh, you know, mysteries are often that way. Christopher Nolan movies are almost always that way. You learn along the way. A well-done, well-told movie explains the details at the end, so you at least understand why they were given, what was going on. But you know, sometimes there's this crucial moment where this, this reveal happens and it makes sense out of everything. It's that turning point, that aha moment. It's like that crucial moment in the sixth sense where all the details come together and you realize the truth about the main character. I'm not going to spoil it for you again. But many of, I think, M. Night Shyamalan's movies, they're, they're kind of like that. But there's this detail. Now, growing up, I kind of thought that was true about life in general. You know, I, I, as a kid, was growing up asking the question, what is going on? I felt like there's some detail that I was missing. And if, if somebody would have just told me that detail, it would make a lot more sense out of life. And that is kind of how life works. As you grow up, it starts to make a little bit more sense. You start to understand things a little bit better. But, you know, there are a lot of people that are looking for that key detail that makes sense out of their life. They're trying to figure it out. They're like that person in the parking lot after the movie. That's asking somebody to explain the movie to them again. You know, that they're looking, what, what was the, the, what's supposed to make sense out of this? What believers have come to understand is that the gospel is the key detail that makes sense out of everything. It makes sense out of life. You come to understand yourself the way that you're supposed to. And you understand how you fit in the world. You understand your relationship to God. When you come to understand and embrace the truth of the gospel. And the, the gospel also makes sense out of the Bible. It is the key detail in this book that makes sense out of it all. It even makes sense out of the law, the Mosaic law, as we're going to see this morning. Sometimes we forget that the Old and New Testaments are all telling one story. And the gospel is the key to that story. So as we look at the passage that we're going to look at this morning, what we find is that the gospel gives clarity to the Mosaic Law, but also to our lives. And so there are temptations that we have to view ourselves as, as more important than we really are. You know, we are tempted at times to think that we're better than others more important than others. The gospel, the good news, that we are declared righteous, to have a righteous status simply and only on the basis of Jesus, it dispels those ideas. 
Realize we're not better than the people around us. We are those who are utterly dependent on Jesus to forgive our sins, to reconcile us to God. So this morning, we're going to look at Romans 3, 27 through 31. You can turn there. And what we're going to do is we're going to see three ways that justification by faith clarifies our situation as it clarifies our relationship to the Mosaic Law. When we come to understand the good news that Paul has been teaching here, we learn that justification by faith in Jesus excludes boasting, removes the distinctions within the law, and it upholds the intention of the law. The fact that our righteous status and acceptance by God only comes through faith in Jesus. That means that boasting is excluded, that the distinctions within the law are removed, and the intention of the law is upheld. So you can turn again to Romans 3. I'm still turning there. Romans 3, starting in verse 27... And that is in, on page 885 in the Bible there in the pew. The first way the gospel clarifies our situation is this. Justification by faith in Jesus excludes boasting in the law. So look there in verse 27. It begins with the word then. And that signals to us that it's pointing back to the previous section. Paul is explaining that everyone, it, God declares everyone through, who believes in Jesus to be righteous on that basis, rather than giving them that status based on a Jewish person obeying the Mosaic law. That's the context. And so based on that reality of justification by faith, Paul then asks this question, what becomes of our boasting? Now the Greek text actually says more literally, where is the boasting? And so it's referring to some specific boasting that Paul's already talked about. And as we follow the flow of argument here, you can see that this boasting he's talking about is from chapter 2 and verse 23, which mentioned a Jewish person boasting in the law. So there were Jewish people in Paul's day who understood obeying the law as necessary for acceptance by God in the end. And we can think of the Pharisees we see in the Gospels who are very concerned about keeping every aspect of the law, every, every detail, Because they believed that in the end, it was not enough to simply be a member of the covenant community. You would not necessarily be accepted by God when he raised everyone and ushered his kingdom and established his kingdom on the earth. You had to be prepared by doing what the law said. You had to do both of those. Be accepted as a covenant member, but also do the law in order to be accepted in the end. Paul's explained in this this letter here, That is not how it works. And what he does is he says there's no, because of how it really does work, there is no room for boasting. We can't boast about our righteousness as though we achieved something. He says boasting is excluded in verse 27. And and then he goes on to clarify that by asking a couple questions and giving an answer. He says, he asks, by what kind of law is boasting excluded? It is excluded by, is it excluded by law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So Paul, he could have just said, boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Kind of draws it out with these questions and answers. He's doing that to draw attention to what his conclusion is here. What does it mean when he says, a law of works, and then he mentions the law of faith. 
He's talking about two kinds of laws, two kinds of rules or governing principles. Now, normally when we read law, we would assume Paul's talking about the Mosaic law. And that's how he's been talking throughout this section. But he's also been very clear. Justification by faith is apart from the law of Moses. And yet here he's talking about a law of faith. So faith is an alternative to trying to be righteous by obeying the law. It's not an alternative view of the law. So that that leads us to understand he's not using law in the same way. He's not saying this is the Mosaic law. And the fact is, if you read first century Jewish people like Josephus and Philo, they use this the same way. They could use this word to talk about the Mosaic law. They could also, Josephus uses it to, to talk about the law of warfare, the rules for warfare, or the rules for writing history. They'd use the same word. Philo uses it to talk about the rules of music. So the idea of, of a governing principle or rules, that's what, that's what Paul's doing here. He's kind of doing a play on words. He's saying following the law of works, that's, that is being directed to obey the law, would not exclude boasting. If you were told to obey the law and that was the means by which you got a righteous status, you could boast. You did something other people didn't do. But if you're depending on God entirely for your righteousness based on Jesus alone, not in what you've accomplished. That gift of righteousness is not something that you can boast about. So he's, he's saying, if following the law of faith that, that is being directed to have faith in Jesus, have complete dependence on Jesus for your right status, that is what excludes boasting. So when people boast, you know, they do that because they've done something better than other people. And they say that, they say what they've done, because they're, the people in the room haven't done what they did. You know, they could say, I, I scored 30, 30 points in the game. You know, I baked the best pie, at least by the judge's considerations. You know, I had straight A's. I made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Every type of boasting is all about what you accomplished, what you did. That's why you can boast about it. You achieved something other people didn't achieve. The law of faith excludes boasting. Why? Why is that the case? Well, Paul kind of clarifies it. He's kind of summarizing what he's already said. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We hear, again, it's either a literary we for just Paul, or he's talking about apostles. But he's saying, this is the good news that we teach, that one is justified by faith apart from the law. You're declared to have a righteous status by means of faith and not in any way connected to what you do in obeying God's law. Luther, when he translated verse 28, he tried to make Paul's intention very clear by translating it and adding the word alone. We are justified by faith alone. That was the most central disagreement during the time of the Reformation with the Roman Catholic Church. Sola fide is what it's referred to. We are justified by faith alone. That's what Paul's teaching here. Our acceptance before God is not based on anything we've accomplished. So what our status, this righteous status before God, it's accomplished for us by Christ and experienced by means of faith alone. So by faith, we understand the facts of the gospel. That Jesus was the Messiah who gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners and rose again. Not only that, though, but we believe that that's true. 
We don't just know the facts, we believe they're true. But beyond that, we put our trust in that truth. So by faith, we view ourselves as those who are accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' righteous status. We're not living as though we're trying to be accepted by God by what we do. We live our lives as those who are depending completely on Jesus. So we don't have anything to boast about. And that includes our faith. We cannot boast about our faith. When we talk, sometimes I think we're, we're not very clear on this. It is not our faith that saves us. Christ and his work is all that saves us. Faith doesn't cause our salvation. It's the way we experience salvation. It's a crucial difference. We should not say, we shouldn't even think that the reason we're saved is because we put our trust in Jesus. Faith is the instrument that God uses to connect us, connect us to Jesus' righteousness. So when we say, when Paul says, that's, that's really what Paul's getting at here in this statement. When Paul says one is justified by faith, that's a passive statement. So getting into grammar. But we could turn that around and make it an active statement. Especially when we understand who's active, who Paul teaches is active in making us righteous. He's very clear. This is the righteousness of God. God is the active agent. So to say God justifies us is the active way to say we are justified. And what this is saying is that God uses our faith as an instrument. It's the instrument he uses to connect us to Jesus' righteous status. So faith is not an achievement. And, and just take a second to think about what faith involves. At some point, somebody told you the good news in a way you could understand it. And, and one way or another, you reached a point where you were convinced of the truth of that. Not only the truth of it, but you were convinced of its trustworthiness. You were convinced to the point that it changed your life. But that's a passive experience. You didn't convince yourself. Think about what we mean when we say you convince yourself of something. That's not a positive thing. That's where we want to believe something. And it doesn't matter the reasons. We're going we're gonna to believe that regardless of whether we even really think it's true or not. We're going to convince ourselves of it. That's not what faith is. With faith, you're convinced of something. And, and it was for reasons outside of you. Not you trying to convince yourself but there was something that convinced you, something that inclined you to believe it. There's many different reasons for, for that, but something inclined you to believe it was true, and not only true, but trustworthy, that you could depend your whole life on that truth. You were convinced, were convinced of it. That's a passive idea. So that's not something you can ultimately take credit for. What's the alternative? If believers are really the ones who figured it out, that we can boast about the fact that we figured it out and other people didn't, well, one, that, that tells us that Paul was completely wrong to tell the, the Corinthians not many of you were wise. But beyond that, you could, you could imagine, you could take credit for your openness to the gospel, right? You could think about it in those terms. The only problem is when the Bible talks about that, the New Testament credits the Holy Spirit with that openness. He convicts us of our sin and our need for righteousness, according to John 16, 8. 
He opens our heart to pay attention to the good news, according to Acts 16, 14. God shines the light of the gospel into our dark hearts, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So the point is, you cannot boast even in your faith. By faith, we sing with Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We, we sing with Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross, I pour contempt on all my pride. Just like we sang this morning. Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to, to claim. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus is our all in all. F.F. Bruce put it. When we come to understand justification correctly, we know that we have no ground for self-congratulation as we contemplate the way of salvation. It is sola gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God alone be the glory. So justification by faith in Jesus excludes any boasting in anything we've accomplished. Second way the good news clarifies our, our situation is found in starting in verse 29. And that's where Paul teaches us that justification by faith in Jesus removes the distinctions within the law. So when we realize that our righteous status before God, by faith alone, is for everyone, Jewish person, non-Jewish person, we understand that it removes the distinctions that were found within the law. What we need to do is when we're reading Romans, we need to understand the context. Paul is talking in this context. In this whole section, he's been talking, interacting with a Jewish person. It, that's in his mind. He's imagining that he's interacting with a Jewish person. The only individual on the planet who would think that they could be considered righteous by God for what they do would have been a Jewish person. If they were going to obey the law, the only person who could imagine themselves as being righteous by obeying the law was a Jewish person. And, and so he asks, he asks about this alternative so alternative idea in verse 29. He asked this question, or is God the God of Jews only? Is God only the God of Jewish people? He gives another option with a, a second question. It's a rhetorical question. Even the way that it's told, it assumes you're going to say, yes, you're right. He says, is he not the God of Gentiles also? And then just for emphasis, he gives his answer. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer those. He gives his answer. Yes, he is the God of the Gentiles also. And then he gives his reason in verse 30, saying, since God is one. It's a very short way, but the Jewish person reading this understood him very clearly. We can understand from the context Paul is saying God is one. He believed that. That's why the ESV and other translations translate the first word since. But the word actually is a conditional word. It means, if indeed. And Daniel Wallace, in his grammar, he explains why, why, does a, why a person would use a condition instead of saying since. They'd be saying, if indeed God is one, in order to draw the person in to say, well, of course God is one. And if you're agreeing with that first statement, then you're going to be more likely to agree with what follows. So every Jewish person who heard what Paul said just then it was, it, they would have had near, a near Pavlovian response. They were conditioned to say, yes, God is one. Because every day, they read or quoted the, the great Shema. 
daily, they quoted Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Paul asking if indeed God is one was going to get an immediate response. Well, of course God is one. We know that. And so Paul then connects that with a truth that says, well, if God is one, if there's only one God, there's only one true God, he's not just the God of Jewish people. If there's only one God, he must also be the God of Gentiles. There's no other options. No other real gods out there. So the true God must be the God of all people. And if God has plans to bless those who are not Jewish, to bless the nations like he promised Abraham and the patriarchs, like he promised Israel in the Old Testament, well, then he was going to carry out those, those blessings for them as Gentiles, as nations, not making them Jewish before he did that. So Paul's making this connection with the great Shema. If God is one, that means he's the God of everyone. If he alone is God... There are no other options. And he's not the only one to make that connection. God used Zechariah to make the same connection in Zechariah 14.9 where he said, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Connecting the great Shema to God's universal reign over the whole world. So it's by means of justification by faith in Jesus that God brings his promised blessings to both Jewish people and Gentiles. That is what the Old Testament promised. Paul's going to go on to explain it more. He's going to show in the life of Abraham how this is true. Here he just simply says that this one God is who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In that verse, in verse 30, the second time he says faith, it has the definite article. We could translate that through the faith or through that same faith. In other words, he's saying this, this underlying instrument that connects the Jewish person, the circumcised to Jesus' righteousness, is the very same means by which God connects the Gentile, the uncircumcised to Jesus' righteous status. So through justification by faith, there is no longer a distinction that separates God's old covenant people from the nations. The distinction of circumcision is an old covenant distinction. Faith in Jesus removes that distinction. That does not mean that God's plans for his old covenant people are over and done with, that he has no role for them in the future. Paul's actually, I think, going to say in the future that he does have a role. But that role, even in the future, will have entirely to do with Jesus and what he's done. So as Paul says in Galatians and Ephesians and even later in Romans, the distinction between Jewish and non-Jewish people is no longer a factor within God's people. God has torn down the dividing wall and made one group from the formerly two. We're now one in Christ. Both of us are considered the offspring of Abraham by faith and heirs of the promise. Our wild Gentile branches have been grafted into the one and same tree. He's going to say in Romans 11. So justification by faith removes that distinction within the, within the law. What that means is that even though God did use his old covenant people to reveal the way of salvation through Jesus, the Messiah, even though he brought the source of salvation, the Jewish Messiah, 
through Jewish people. That did not in any way mean that they had a better standing before God that they could boast about. Justification by faith in Christ puts everyone on the same footing. We are all equally indebted to God. Now, the fact is, we could, we could easily imagine that there is something about us that makes us better in God's eyes than other people. And we could imagine God must like us better here in America because of all the blessings we've had. Or, or we could imagine that God's prouder of us because we didn't have the kind of sinful life before Christ that some other people do in their testimonies. Or we could imagine that we're more important to God because, well, we grew up in the church unlike the heathen around us. Whatever it is, you can imagine there's something about you that makes you better. But justification by faith in Jesus, it completely levels the playing field. Our access to God has absolutely nothing to do with us and absolutely everything to do with Jesus. We are not better. We are not more important to God than anyone else. God isn't prouder of us because our testimony didn't have the kind of sordid details that other people's had. We're all facing the same wrath. We have all sinned, and we are continually falling short of God's glory. So when we think about ourselves, what we need to do is we need to, to think like John Newton and say, amazing grace, how great the sound that, gave, that saved a wretch like me. We should think like Paul who said that he was the worst of sinners. We should think, I'm the worst of sinners. Good news of justification by faith in Jesus means that we should no longer think of any positive distinctions from other people. God is one. He is not simply the God of one ethnicity or culture or gender or class. He's the Lord of all. We are equally unworthy of his acceptance. And the third and, and final way that this, this good news clarifies our situation is found in verse 31. And it's this. Justification by faith in Jesus upholds the intention of the law. If you were trying to put two and two together as Paul's talking here, you could easily think that it sounds like Paul's saying that the law has no good purpose and function. It's always bad. And sometimes when we talk about law and grace, we, we do the same thing. It almost sounds like we're saying law is bad and grace is good and what Paul's saying is that that's not the case. Look at verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. What Paul's been teaching, what we understand in the gospel, does not mean that the Mosaic law plays no beneficial use. And so he's going to explain that. Justification by faith in Jesus does not nullify the law. Paul says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. It's good news. About our righteous status in Jesus alone, it upholds the true intention of the law. An intention that was there from the very beginning. It didn't just happen later. And he's going to go on to show that the law was never an alternate means of salvation. It wasn't like God was doing one thing and then Israel failed and so he had to do something different. Jesus has always been the plan. Even when Paul gives that hypothetical scenario where he, he says that one who obeys the law could be considered righteous, he is not saying that's why God gave the law. The law, when we think about the progress of God's revelation, the law was a very important part of the steps to God revealing the truth that he eventually reached through Christ. So 
it awaited, to fully understand what God was doing, it awaited Jesus' arrival. That doesn't mean that the faithful in Israel weren't able to respond to it in line with what it was truly intended for. And what Paul's going to say is the faithful in Israel did respond the same way we respond, by faith. That is how Abraham was made righteous. That is how David was declared righteous. There is no difference in salvation throughout the Testaments. So, what is the intention of the law? When Jesus came, he preached, we, we were in Matthew not long ago, he preached the depth of righteousness that's actually taught in the law. The law taught us about what it means to really be righteous. Even laws on murder and adultery, Jesus taught the trajectory of it. What was it intended to teach? It was intended to bring us to the place to realize that being righteous is not just external. It's not just not murdering. It's not just not committing adultery. It actually means not lusting, not having sinful anger. That's the degree of holiness that the law was actually pointed towards. And Jesus revealed that when he arrived. So on the one hand, what the the Mosaic law was pointing to is the absolute holiness of God. And that then showed what God's people were required for, were required of. They were to be holy as God is holy. That's what Leviticus 19.2 says. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The law revealed the absolute necessity of holiness. At the same time, it revealed the absolute certainty of our sin. The sacrificial system pointed to the fact that we are sinners. That we are in constant need of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That's why we, there was a need for daily, periodic, and, and yearly sacrifices. Because we're sinners. We're not holy as God is holy. The writer to the Hebrews says that in these sacrifices, there was, a di- there was a yearly reminder, a reminder of sins every year. The law was never meant to teach that you can do it. You can be holy enough by your own strength. It was meant from the beginning and throughout to teach us that we can't do it. We're sinners. We have to rely on God completely. Ever since our separation from God in the fall, we could not be holy as God is holy. We continually fail to do that. We cannot live out God's glory. That's why the sacrifices were needed. So when we talk about the good news and the gospel and this justification by faith, we are not in any way out of step with the true intentions of the law. In fact, we're upholding it. We uphold what the law was really pointing to the whole time by depending on Jesus to do what we could never do. We see in Jesus the one who the sacrificial sense, the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. In fact, we take the law seriously by trusting in Jesus. He's the true sacrifice without blemish. So, it's true. We are no longer under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic Law. Paul's going to go on to say that. The law does not tell us exactly what to do. The Mosaic Law does not. But the law still functions as revelation. It still points us to Christ. It still points us even once we're trusting in Christ to the kind of distinct living that's called for by the Spirit 
once we are trusting in Jesus. Once we're accepted by God, through Jesus, we are called to become more and more like Jesus. So, as a legislation, we are not under the law. But as revelation, it does point us to the fact that we need to be holy. And that in the power of the Spirit, we can begin to be holy. Because of what Jesus has done for us. So, when we think about our our testaments, when we think about the Bible, we could think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are kind of doing different things. Like they're kind of almost even in conflict, that there's separate worlds going on. What Jesus and his apostles teach is that Jesus' arrival as the crucified Messiah is the key detail that makes sense out of everything. It's not like those lazy storytellers in the Marvel Universe who come up with the multiverse because they didn't think everything through. They had to come up with a way to fix some of their problems to bring all the stories together. It's not like that. You know, last week I mentioned the, the Latin phrase deus ex machina, the God from the machine, the idea that this Greek God would show up at the end of a Greek tragedy or Roman tragedy and fix everything. Today they use that same phrase, not in the same way. No longer use it in reference to a Greek God. Now they use it to talk about this, this emergence of a solution that nobody saw coming. It's just kind of put in there, all of a sudden it seems like all is lost, and then all of a sudden they have this unexpected solution. So you have, in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, the very end, all the aliens seem like they've, they've conquered everything, and then all of a sudden, bacteria is the savior. <laughs> or I think in the Superman movie where he's unable to rescue Lois, and so he goes and spins the earth the other way to somehow turn back time. I mean, this is not a way that you can actually do anything, but somehow that is the solution. Or it's that last scene in the first Jurassic Park movie where they've been terrified by the T-Rex the whole time, but at the very end when they're about to die by the raptors, the, the T-Rex shows up. Now what you would assume is going to happen at that point is now you're really in trouble because not only do you have to worry about the raptors but also the T-Rex. And what happens? The T-Rex rescues them. Totally unexpected. That is not what Jesus is in the Bible story. He's not the unexpected solution nobody saw coming. He's the aha moment where you're like, oh, now it makes sense. Now everything makes sense. Now I understand what God was doing. Jesus puts everything into perspective. Justification by faith puts everything, including the law, into perspective. It's why nobody should ever boast and should have never boasted. It's why even the distinctions in the law should have never given any Jewish person the idea that they were superior. If they'd have been paying attention, they would have recognized, no, that's not what the law was teaching. Jesus, his atonement, his redemption, the justification found in him, that's the key to everything. It's what everything was pointing to. Now, Paul didn't understand that as a Pharisee before he met Jesus. He he thought, as a Pharisee, he had a pretty good case before God to be accepted by him. He explains that in Philippians 3, and verses 5 and 6, he gives his former perspective. He says, you know, his parents obeyed the law's requirement and circumcised him at eight days old. He was no convert to Judaism. He was a pure-blooded Israelite. And his family during the exile had remained faithful. They could trace their lineage back to Benjamin. And even when the Greek rule was taking place and the Greeks were trying to force their way of life on Jewish people, his family had maintained their obedience to the law. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And not only what his family had done for him, but Paul himself had personally achieved very many things when it came to the law. 
he subscribed to the strictest interpretation of the law, the Pharisees' interpretation. They made fences around the law, rules around the law to keep from breaking any of the laws. And he, he went so far to say he was zealous for the law to the point that he was willing to stop, put a stop to anyone who he saw as threatening it. And he saw the Christians as threatening the law, threatening God's commands. As far as a, a Pharisee was concerned, Paul had met all the law's requirements. But Paul didn't understand what the law was really pointing to until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That key detail changed everything for Paul. And this is how he puts it. Instead of having confidence in himself, in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's testimony is no longer would he boast in the law. Now, he understood what the law was really talking about. What it meant for himself, really. He understood that it pointed to his need for righteousness outside of himself. A need that was met exclusively and completely in Christ. So much so that anything else that he could possibly imagine would give him right status was actually worthless compared to knowing Christ. So is that your testimony? Or are you counting on your obedience to somehow be enough for God to accept you in the end? You, know, do you imagine there's something that's going to distinguish you from the real people who should be punished by God. Jesus came because that's not going to work. We cannot do anything for ourselves that would establish God's acceptance. We're sinners. We need Jesus to pay our debt for sin that we could never pay and to give us his righteous status. So do you believe that Jesus did that for you? That is the only way to be accepted by God. Now, what this means is that for those of us who are trusting in Jesus, we have nothing to boast about. We owe everything to Jesus. When we're tempted to think that we're better than other people, we need to remember our acceptance has nothing to do with us and what we've done. When we try to obey God, and we do. As believers, what we're doing is we're doing that in the power of the Spirit. We're doing that out of gratitude and love for God. Not in order for Him to accept us. We're doing it because He's accepted us. And because He's given us His Spirit to actually produce obedience in us. So when we think about obeying, and if we think in any way that it plays into how God looks at us in comparison to others, it's invariably going to do two things. One of two things. In response to reality, we're going to change the rules. We're going to look at God's rules in a way that allows us to keep the rules. We're going to simplify them. We're going to make them into externals. So that God's rules are really about doing things like wearing the right clothes, listening to the right music, going to church, reading your Bible, not 
the depth of righteousness that Jesus talked about in the law that comes from the heart. Because that's unattainable. Or, as Tim Keller points out, when we think about our obedience as counting for how God accepts us, we're going to open ourselves up to being crushed by our failure. Because when we know the truth, when we understand that we are failing at it, we're either going to despair, we're going to, Tim Keller puts it this way, you will either hate yourself for failing, or as Luther did, you'll come to hate God because you cannot meet his requirements. The gospel is a much better way to understand reality. To understand your situation. It's better because it's true. This is what Jesus and his apostles revealed as the truth. But it's also better because the alternative is detrimental to us and to others. When we think we're better than other people, and that's why God's going to accept us, we're not seeing ourselves as the Bible teaches, and we're either going to encourage a hypocritical attitude, a hypocritical pride, that's detrimental to the people around us. Or it's going to create this frustration because we'll recognize the reality. We, we can't do what we think we should be able to do. But when we see the truth of this justification by faith, we understand that the one God's rules were pointing to the one who fulfills them. Ultimately, they're pointing to Jesus, the one who is holy as God is holy, the, the only man who is holy as God is holy, who is also the Son of God. He's our only hope to be made right with God. So what we as believers need to do is not lose sight of that key detail. That's what puts everything else into perspective. And the clarity that that brings to our lives, it, it leads to this depth of joy and gratitude that we're going to express to God from now to eternity. Join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we are unable to take these words that you've inspired and to even put them into practice. We know that any good we do is because you are at work in us. So give us the, the insight to, to respond to this in fear and trembling because you are at work. Not only so that we do these things, you produce this good obedience in us, but that we even want to do them. All of that comes from you. We ask you to, to give us the ability to, to view ourselves as we really are, and then in response to this amazing acceptance, in response to this amazing grace, that we would rejoice, that we would be grateful, and that we would live out really love towards you, towards the Son, towards the Father. That we would live out a response that rests entirely in you. So give us the courage to take steps of faith knowing that you will do what your word says you will do. You will work in us that fruit, you will produce fruit in our lives. But help us to never confuse that fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Never to confuse that with our own personal achievement, 
to never begin to think of ourselves as, as really better than the people around us. Help us to think, but by the grace of God, there go I. That we would, we would recognize and depend on you entirely, depending on the Son and what he's accomplished, depending on your power. We pray that you would, you would cause anyone here who does not know you to pay attention to this good news. you would help them to see their sin, their need for righteousness outside of themselves. We thank you for the work you promised to do in us, and we depend on you for it. Amen.